0: This is the Guardian.
1: Today, Piet Wilders has talked about banning mosques, outlawing headscarves, ending Muslim immigration, and now he could be the next Dutch prime minister.
0: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket
2: costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: He's been called a political pyromaniac. For more than 20 years, the Dutch MP Geert Wilders has been one of Europe's most divisive politicians, convicted in court for insulting foreigners, living under 24-hour police protection because of threats to his life. In person, Wilders is brash. He can be funny. He's got unusual hair. Kind of sounds familiar.
3: I'm my own man. I'm not a copy of Donald Trump. I'm Geert Wilders from Holland. And for many issues, um, I spoke about it already for 10, 12 years, even before Donald Trump was thinking, perhaps, about going into politics.
1: For a long time, the Dutch political establishment had managed to keep Heert Wilders on the fringes. But an upsurge in voter anger in elections this month delivered a result that shocked everybody, including Wilders, delivering him the biggest share of the vote and a chance to form the next Dutch government. It's yet another example of how the far right are marching into parliaments across Europe, but it might also be an example of how mainstream parties are letting them in. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, an election surprise in the Netherlands. And I, Boztash, you're a journalist based in Amsterdam who covers Dutch politics, which last week was thrown into uproar by the election performance of someone called Hit Wilders. You've actually met Wilders. What was that like?
0: I met him when I was working for the Daily Telegraph, which is a newspaper that he really likes. In fact, outside his office, he has, or he had at the time, a full page article about Margaret Thatcher, who was one of his heroes. Of course. From the Daily Telegraph. And he had a very big picture of Winston Churchill in his office, which is kind of buried in the middle of Parliament, because as a result of the things that he said about Islam, he's had death threats for many years, and he's spent almost 20 years now with
1: 24-7 security. What's he like in person?
0: The thing is, he's very soft. He's very soft when you speak to him. And he's very nice, which sounds a really strange thing to say. He says things that are very inflammatory and that Some people are extremely hurt and upset by. But he doesn't take a tone that is inflammatory. When he talks to you, he sounds quite reasonable. It's in Parliament that you see the sharp side of him, that you see him... ...like a stand-up comedian, very well rehearsed. Sometimes extremely funny. I mean, even Mark Rutte in debates with him is sometimes sort of in fits of laughter... ...when Wilder says to him, oh, just be normal man... ...and then Rutte comes back and, oh, be normal yourself, man. They had a lot of respect for each other as sparring partners.
3: Zeker voorzitter, alleen, ja, wie zegt het? Heel Nederland weet nog niet eens of de heer Rutte ooit een vrouw heeft gehad. oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Ook waar, ja. Yeah.
1: Where is he from in the Netherlands?
0: He's from Limburg. He's from Venlo, from the south of the Netherlands. Sometimes there's discussion in Dutch politics about what they call the Haagse Elite, the elite of the Hague or the four cities in the centre of the Netherlands. And there are some concerns expressed in politics that the regions have been neglected. He always talks about being the voice of the people. You know, I speak your language. And his accent is a regional accent. He does come from a part of the Netherlands that isn't The Hague.
1: So his career is a long one and it's a controversial one. Let's go back a few years. When does Wilders emerge as a serious political force?
0: Kurt Wilders started off life within Mark Rutter's party, the VVD, People's Party for Freedom and Democracy, and was at some point Mark Rutter's mentor for a short period of time, apparently. He started in politics a long time ago. He's set to become a nestor in December, which is the longest standing MP in parliament, 25 years. He fell out with the VVD. He was very skeptical about the accession of Turkey potentially to the EU and concerned in those times already about Islam and issues like headscarves.
3: But I would stop um, immigration of non-Western immigrants for the period of five years time uh, immediately. um not because I have anything against uh, uh, foreigners or people from non-Western countries, but because we have huge problems with integration uh, in the Netherlands.
0: So he Uh, started his own Party for Freedom, which has been a constant force since for 17 years in Dutch politics.
1: So he says he's motivated by the assassination of two far-right figures, Pim Fortuna, who was an MP who was assassinated in 2002 and by the killing of filmmaker Theo Van Gogh two years later in 2004. And Wilders very quickly defines himself as being hardline on Islam and more specifically Muslim migrants. Tell me about that.
0: He started making national headlines and international headlines around 2007, 2008. And he starts to take a very hard line on Islam. So he sends a letter to the Volkskrant talking about the Quran and calling it a fascist book. And calling it the Mein Kampf of a religion that aims to eliminate others and saying it should be banned, just like Mein Kampf is banned. He makes a short film at the time that criticises the Quran and it intersplices images of the September 11th attacks with quotations from the book. At the time, he tries to come to the UK to show his film in Parliament and he's refused entry. He later takes the UK government to court and wins, and they say that he shouldn't have been refused entry. But he's making a name for himself. And around this time, he also calls for a Kopfodden tax, a head rag tax, Mm. a tax on headscarves. God. Obviously, a derogatory way to refer to headscarves.
1: Okay, so he's kicking up a stink. He's getting global headlines. Does he ever get close to actual power?
0: So in 2010, he actually is a uh, part of Dutch government in a kind of confidence and supply agreement. They call it a gedouk. is a funny Dutch word, which kind of means to support something while looking away. So that's what they use to describe how they deal with drugs, cannabis. It's not strictly speaking legal, but they look away. So he enters parliament with the Christian Democrats and with Ritter supporting their parliament in 2010. So that was from 2010 to 2012, and he basically torpedoed that government because he said that his voters couldn't accept the cuts that were needed. And after that period, he was effectively excluded by all other parties, I think partly because he was seen as an unreliable partner, politically speaking. But by that stage, everyone was using his views as well as a reason not to work with him.
1: John Henley, you're the Guardian's Europe correspondent, and you've been covering the Netherlands over the past decade, a period in which Hietwilders has been frozen out of power, and the Prime Minister of the Netherlands has been Mark Rutte. Tell me about Rutte. What kind of PM has he been?
4: His party, the VVD, is a centre right party. It's quite liberal economically. He's basically been the great survivor of Dutch politics. He became known as Teflon Mark because of the number of scandals that slid off him. He's led four consecutive coalitions of very different complexions, different sorts of alliances. He's been a very major figure on the EU stage, very well known in summits in Brussels. The Netherlands really kind of punches above its weight in the EU, which is one of the reasons why people are watching this particular election that's just happened with such great interest.
1: And he said that scandals seem to just slide off of him. What kinds of scandals?
4: The most serious, the one that caused his government to collapse a few years back now was an awful child benefit fraud scandal in which more than 20,000 families were accused of defrauding child benefit. It was mostly done by sort of algorithm, AI, and many of them were accused on the basis of their ethnicity. It all turned Mm -hmm. out to be completely fake. His government collapsed over that.
1: So that collapse was in 2021. Rutte came back again and served for another two years. What's made him such an effective survivor? What is it that gives him that Teflon quality?
4: He's a kind of everyman. Dutch voters really don't like your kind of flamboyant, showboating, grandstanding style of politician. Rutter kind of goes everywhere by bike. He still lives in the house that he bought when he was a student with a bunch of student friends. He famously once refused to allow the cleaners in the Houses of Parliament to clean up after he spilt his coffee there. He insisted on doing it himself. So part of it is that he's this kind of everyman figure, Mr Normal, and the other is that he's undoubtedly a really expert tactician. He's very, very good at knitting together coalitions and alliances of parties that aren't necessarily very politically aligned and at keeping them together. And the Dutch held their faith in him for a very long time, for 13 years. So Rutter
1: is the ultimate establishment figure in some ways, the grown-up in the room. In those 13 years he's been in power, do you think he's made the life of the average Dutch person better?
4: A lot of Dutch voters would say no, there are problems in the health. System. There's an absolutely horrendous housing crisis in the Netherlands at the moment. The country is short of well over 300,000 homes. That crisis has been allowed to grow. Experts have been warning of it for years now, and it hasn't been resolved. And that's the kind of really concrete problem that voters feel very strongly about. There's a significant increase in the number of refugees and asylum seekers up by Almost a third last year and set to equal this year the same number that there were in 2015, which was at the real peak of Europe's migration crisis. And speaking to Dutch voters, yes, there's a certain degree of frustration and a feeling that the government doesn't take the issues that really matter to people most. Have I got access to good health care? Can I make ends meet at the end of the month? Am I having to pay too much for my food? These kind of things, they really matter. And a lot of problems have come to the head over the last few months.
1: And so as pressures are growing on Dutch households, as voters are feeling like they're just not getting a fair deal anymore, what has Heertwilders been doing in the meantime, in all this time that he's been on the sidelines of government?
4: He's made a political career out of a mission that he says he's on to stop what he calls the Islamic invasion of the West. Mm. And the party has done pretty well. It was the second biggest party in the Netherlands in 2017, third again in 2021. It's consistently been up there and would have been a candidate to be a member of a Dutch coalition government had it not been for Wilder's really outrageous provocative statements. He's been convicted for insulting Moroccans. That was in 2014.
3: I am not a racist, and neither are my voters. This sentence proves that you judges are completely out of touch.
4: He's called Moroccans scum. Hmm. He said the Netherlands is under attack from a, an invading force of Muslims. I'm not a racist. Um, the Islam is
3: racist. The Islamic ideology, not I, makes a distinction between everything that is Islamic and is non-Islamic. I don't. They do. And I believe that the Islamic ideology and freedom are incompatible.
4: And all of that really made him a political pariah and because of the party's platform, which has included things like banning the Koran, outlawing mosques, banning the Islamic headscarf, measures that would absolutely be unconstitutional in the Netherlands, where there is the freedom of religion and freedom to practice the religion of your choice.
1: So Wilders has been consistently banging the drum against Islam Saying migration is at the root of many of the problems the Netherlands faces. Has that had any effect on Rutte and the way that he governs?
4: He accommodated the far right, he made immigration one of his big issues and I think you'd have to say that he has contributed by just being around for so long and and surviving these scandals and coming back time after time after time at the head of a different coalition. He's probably contributed to this feeling, which a lot of Dutch voters have and a lot of voters have in a lot of other countries around Europe, a loss of faith, a loss of trust, a loss of confidence in the mainstream political class, to actually address the issues that mean a lot to voters.
1: And so that's the situation as we enter 2023. And then in the middle of this year, Mark Rutter's government collapses. How does that happen?
4: Mark Rutter's government collapses because it could not agree. The four-party coalition could not agree on measures to reduce the number of asylum seekers and refugees allowed to... Enter the Netherlands.
0: Mark Rutter left the palace after talks with King Wilhelm Alexander. Mr. Rutter announced late on Friday that his entire cabinet had resigned after it failed to agree on stricter immigration policies. New elections are not expected to be held before mid November. Let's get more on
4: this now. The root of it was that Rutter essentially wanted to reduce the number of migrants entering the Netherlands to a level that was not considered acceptable by his more moderate left-leaning coalition partners.
1: Chennai, the Ruta government falls earlier this year, primarily because of a bill to deal with immigration. And that sets up an election campaign where immigration is at the centre of things in the way that it's never been before. So tell me about how that campaign played out.
0: The major parties on the right certainly all talked a lot about immigration. And there's been some discussion now about to what extent doing that played into the hands of Wilders because he owns this debate on immigration. Nobody can say it as hard or as strong as him. You say 15,000, I say zero, (laughs) even if that's not realistic.
1: As the other parties are starting to sound more and more like Geert Wilders, what other kinds of things is he campaigning on?
0: Someone has described his position to me as welfare chauvinism. So his policies are actually quite sort of left-wing in terms of more affordable housing or lower tax for the workers or a lower pension age or better health care, but only for Henk and Ingrid, the Dutch voters, hmm. not for Fatima and Mohammed. This is how Filders likes to refer to his nativist voters versus his foreign people coming in. The question mark is really, I mean, how could you possibly pay for all these wonderful sweeties that he's offering in his manifesto? And some ING economists, that's one of our big banks, have looked at what it would mean if we had a right-wing government with builders. And the ING said, well, we've looked at the policies and while there'd be things like Euroscepticism and a certain tone on immigration. If you look at the economics of it all, it all leads to an expansionary economy And effectively, given the fact that we have almost full employment, it would need more foreign labour. I mean, this is the intrinsic irony in
1: it. It sounds like, in a way, by taking on some of Wilder's hardline positions, Dutch politicians were signalling to voters that he and his party are not on the fringes anymore. Meanwhile, he's talking about the issues that might really resonate with people. How much is he still talking about Islam, about migration, all these things that have turned the establishment and voters off for so many years.
4: He
0: was perceived to be taking a milder tone. Hmm. And in previous elections, he hasn't done a lot of debates or interviews with liberal media where he might get grilled. This election, he was on everything. He was on News a sort of liberal current affairs programme where everyone was grilled. He didn't look terribly comfortable. He was doing a lot of licking his teeth under his mouth. But, you know, he answered the questions. He seemed mild. He said on this programme that he was prepared to park his positions on banning mosques Islamic schools. He was a bit more nebulous about headscarves in government institutions and banning the Quran. He said he was prepared to park these points because what mattered was the next period of government. But he did also say Islam is in our DNA, meaning that his standpoints on Islam were part of how he was made up. So while people have said that he's taking a milder tone, and he has said himself, people say I'm taking a milder tone. I don't know if he's taking a milder tone or not.
1: And so then, tell me about election night and how you experienced it.
0: I was at the VVD—that's Ritter's party, Eichelloses party. So I was there in the Hague, and it was full, and there were loads of drinks because the VVD is a very well-funded party, and they take care of their people. And before the result came out, most people were quite bullish, and they were saying, "Yeah, I think it'll be okay." Maybe a little bit nervous. Vilders had been coming up in the polls. So there was some tension, but it was quite funny because I was talking to some MPs and then a guy who didn't tell me what his name was, but he just sort of said to me, sort of, uh, Wilders will win. Hmm. He'll win. It was like he was the only person in the room who was saying it and he called it right.
3: We gaan het nu zien. De PVV met 35 zetels. Een absolute landslide is dit. 35 zetels, een winst van 18. De grootste, Ipsos. GroenLinks Partij van de Arbeid.
0: No one predicted how big the win would be and there was just this kind of silence in the room. You could see everyone swallowing and thinking, goodness, what does that mean? And you could see some people thinking, is this a result that means that he has to be part of government because we have to listen to this voice? What does it mean if you don't listen to this voice? Is it more dangerous not to listen to the voice hmm. than it is to listen to it?
3: We'll make sure the Dutch people will be number one again. The hope is that people will get their country back. We'll make sure the Netherlands are for the
1: Dutch again. We'll limit the asylum tsunami. And what was that result? Just how emphatic was his vote?
0: So he won 37 seats. The results are not completely definitive until the 5th of December because there's a bit of shilly shallying. But let's say 37 for the moment which is a quarter of Parliament. Now, you could say that three quarters of the Netherlands didn't vote for him, which is true, but a quarter for one party. In recent years, this is a very big figure. We have probably the most proportionally representative system in the world here and a very low threshold to get parliamentary representation. So we've got endless parties, currently 21 in Parliament. I think we'll be going to 15 or 16. It depends how the last votes work out. So to have so many seats in such a splintered electoral landscape is quite a win. But I think that you could read this election really in terms of the most dominant mood is the protest mood. All of the parties that have gained have been one way or the other protest parties.
4: Excuse me. Hi. I'm a reporter with The Guardian, a British newspaper, and I'm putting together a piece on the reactions to the election.
1: The results of the election were shocking to a lot of Dutch people, but it was scary to some of them as well, especially those from migrant backgrounds and Dutch Muslims. Ashifa Kassam, one of our colleagues, was in Rotterdam a few days ago, speaking to people there about the result.
3: Uh, van uh, Geert Willems. Yes, ja, yes, ik ben er yes. blij mee. Ja, <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. nee, er zijn wel yeah. dingen. Zoals... He is right
0: with some things, but not all.
3: Uh, onderwerpen zoals de huizenmarkt Ja, yeah. uh, housing,
0: en like, housing is right on housing
3: En uh, dat uh, alles uh, duur is uh, And everything
0: is very expensive
3: Ja, yeah, en uh, dat soort dingen, maar bijvoorbeeld wat hij denkt over de islam natuurlijk, yeah, ben ik niet mee yeah. eens
0: Hij is niet, hij denkt niet over wat hij denkt over de islam Hij is 57, hij yeah. was 5
3: when i ik naar Holland kwam yeah, Ja, he
0: hij kwam, hij was 5 jaar
3: oud En uh, moet ik nou de deur uit? Ja. Nou, mais want, moet ik me eh Will you go? Do I have? Ja. Yeah. Geschreven omdat geen wilders dan wil?
0: Ja, ja, hebt je No, no, no. We will never do it. because so, yeah. we are afraid.
3: Yeah. What does it make you afraid about? Afraid about the decisions that will come. Yeah. Must we go? Where are we going to go? We have no country. Yeah. Netherlands is our country.
0: Maybe we are Muslims, that's Netherlands is our country. Yeah. My hair is so black, but I'm Netherlands. We don't bite anyone.
3: We are human. We are a mother. We are a father. Our children are growing up in Netherlands. Maybe we, we must go.
1: Shanai, when you speak to people, how do they feel knowing that fully a quarter of the country looked at Hiertfelder's and decided he was worth a go?
0: I think people are very upset. I think that some people are thinking, what place do I have in this country? I was reading an article by a journalist in Het Parole, which is a local Amsterdam newspaper, someone who had lived here his whole life and had gone to the top level of education and was a journalist and had had various instances of racism in the Netherlands, which is quite obvious when it occurs, possibly because people are quite direct about what they're thinking. And him saying, well, what is this country that I live in? Is this my country? And say, so, yes, it is my country. Yes, I am from here. But some people questioning, well, are we welcome here anymore?
1: What happens now? Is there any chance that the Dutch government that eventually does come to power is going to include Git Wilders?
0: It might do. The jury's really out. We have a very complicated dance. It's almost like a courtly dance where the parties all try to form a coalition. Because Wilders was first, he gets the first shot at trying to make a coalition. And there's a number of sort of steps that are set in writing that need to be made. The question is, could he make a coalition? And if he did, what would it look like? So they would have to hammer out an agreement. Presumably, all of the anti-constitutional points would be left out of that because. How could they be part of it?
1: As you're saying, his most extreme policies, banning mosques, banning headscarves. If in this scenario, Wilders is part of the government, those policies very unlikely to be part of it.
0: I can't see how they could be part of it. The first article of our constitution is about freedom of religion they would directly conflict with the first article of the constitution. I don't see how you could possibly have a government, especially a government that had won a quarter of the votes. We're not talking a government that's won a majority of the votes that would uphold those positions in a coalition. I I don't think that would be sustainable. But the question is, even if you had his party and it didn't have those policies in the constitution, would there be a kind of creep? just in the background, in the fact that these are policies that some people who voted for that party or some people who are part of that party feel are acceptable.
1: Coming up, why the far right is rising in Europe and why parties in the centre might be helping them. John, this election result is part of a wider story of the far right growing across Europe. Tell me that story as we've seen it play out over the last couple of years.
4: Broadly speaking, the proportion of European voters casting their ballots for populist, mainly far-right parties, has been on the rise. And it now stands at about 30%. If you look at elections last year, roughly 30% of European voters cast their ballots for anti-immigrant nationalist, far-right parties.
1: I mean, that's one in three, John. That's a huge number of people choosing parties that a decade ago, would have been described as far-right, maybe even extremists.
4: Yeah, that vote share has been consistently rising for several reasons. Firstly, the nationalist far-right holy triumvirate of causes used basically to be anti-migration, particularly anti-Islam and anti-EU. And they've added to that issues like the cost of living and the housing crisis, the injustice of the green transition that the sort of ordinary working people are going to be made to pay for the green transition. So those are all real factors. And so all of those factors played in to this election result and it in that sense kind of confirms an upward trajectory. I think it's not all one-way traffic. We've seen a couple of election results this year that really bucked that trend. We've seen the Spanish far right party Vox lost about a third of its MPs in the Spanish Parliament. The nationalist authoritarian law and justice party in Poland that's been in power for several years now also lost its parliamentary majority. And it now looks like a more centre-right government headed by Donald Tusk is going to be taking over in Poland. But if you look around the continent, you see Italy now has its furthest right government since the Second World War. There's a far-right party in coalition in Finland in France. If there was an election, a presidential election tomorrow, probably Marine Le Pen would win. So this really fits into a broader picture of the far right advancing steadily across Europe and essentially, for all this variety of reasons, entering the mainstream.
1: you think that far right advance that you've detailed to us is something that was inevitable? Or do you think that establishment parties have mishandled the threat that people like Vilders represent?
4: I think that there is absolutely no doubt that the mainstream parties, along with the media actually, have gone a long way to help normalize the views and the talking points of the far right. I mean, this is a little bit anecdotal, but I think it's very telling. I had been the correspondent in Paris for a decade, and I left Paris in 2006. And when I left, it was about three, four years after Jean-Marie Le Pen, Marine's father, in an absolute political earthquake. He had knocked one of the main presidential candidates out of the second round. The second round was going to be between Jacques Chirac and Jean-Marie Le Pen. It was a momentous moment in French politics. And Jacques Chirac refused point blank to debate Jean-Marie Le Pen. He said, you don't debate with the far right. Le Pen was never interviewed on French television, French radio. These were not normal views. And then I came back to France in 2018, five years ago, and turned on the radio. And one of the first people I heard being interviewed on the main French public radio was Marine Le Pen. Mm. So in the space of about 15 years, we'd essentially gone from these are political pariahs to these are legitimate politicians with legitimate views. And yeah, there has been a process of normalisation.
1: John, finally, if you're a progressive party watching these trends with some concern... What do you think the lesson is for how you fight a challenge like Vildas or whatever the version of Vildas might be in your particular European country?
4: We've seen enough over the past decade or so in enough European countries to know that if you fight elections on the territory of the far right, then the far right will, if not win, at least make progress. Hmm. I think that the centre-right and the centre-left in Europe need to stop fighting on the turf of the populists and the far-right. And they need to come up with concrete proposals that will favourably impact the lives of the people whose votes they are seeking. You know, we live in an age of fear and concern about the climate, about incomes, about inflation. And the populists and the far right are offering simple solutions. They may very well not work, but it seems to me that mainstream politicians need also to offer solutions. They need to offer them with the same kind of conviction, but they need to be reasonable and fair solutions and practicable solutions that might actually work.
1: John, thank you very much.
4: Thank you very much.
1: That was John Henley, The Guardian's Europe correspondent. Thank you also to Shanae Boztash, a journalist based in Amsterdam, and Ashifa Kassam, The Guardian's European Community Affairs correspondent. Hers and Shania's and John's coverage of this election is at theguardian.com. Before we go, today the award-winning team behind Guardian documentaries are releasing their latest film. It's called Birdsong, and it's a wonderful change of pace. It explores the dying, whistling traditions of the Hmong people of northern Laos, whose language sits on the boundary between music and speech. The documentary explores how that ancient tradition is colliding with modern urban life. It's at theguardian.com forward slash birdsong. And that is it for today. I'm Michael Safi, and this episode was produced by Courtney Youssef, Natalie Ktena, and Morgan Afori. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Elizabeth Casson, And we're back with you tomorrow.
0: This is The Guardian.